You're listening to the Neighbors and Nations podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Neighbors and Nations podcast. I'm Todd Stiles. So thankful you've joined us. And on this episode, I want you to meet Matt Maestas. Matt is a pastor at Fellowship West, a church in the Kansas City metro area. He's also a church planting catalyst for the Sin Network. Uh, I met Matt at a few assessments that I would attend with our own church planters and just watched him for a while and, and his effectiveness with people, his clarity and accuracy when it comes to the mission. And so over time I got to know Matt a little better and I just became very intrigued and impacted by his own commitment to, yes, both a, a neighborly approach to, to gospel sharing, but also a, an understanding that nations matter as well. I think what you'll love most in this episode is Matt's own transparency about some of his early struggles. Uh, you'll love his conversion story and its impact uh, in his life, but also just some of his own vulnerability in regards to pastoring, uh, both his successes and failures, where God has brought him now, and how all that impacts his his own view towards both neighbors and nations. And so I'm privileged to be able to interview Matt. I think it'll be a real uh, win for you to hear this. And so enjoy this episode of Neighbors and Nations, my interview with Matt Maestas. Welcome to our podcast today, Neighbors and Nations. I'm excited to have Matt Maestas here with us all the way from, is it Kansas City, Matt? It is, yeah, in a suburb right outside of Kansas City, Overland Park, the biggest uh, suburb in the Kansas City metro area. Welcome to our podcast today. Oh man, I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Now, I know I met you through your work with the North American Mission Board, but I know mm-hmm. you also do some other things. Uh, kind of give I us do. the latest update on what you're doing right now. Yeah. So uh, starting in January, I began serving part-time as the discipleship pastor at Fellowship West Church, which is a multiplying church here in the Kansas City metro area. And I'm really privileged to serve on staff there. And then I also uh, lead, uh, I'm a physical trainer. And so I lead uh, two, three classes, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at our gym here. It's a boot camp class that that I get to lead three times a week. And you also do some uh, assessing, is that correct, still with NAM or not? Yeah, so for the last couple of years, I served as the regional trainer for the Midwest for all of our assessment centers as well. So each of uh, our assessment centers for the North American Mission Board, we had uh, several of them in the Midwest, and they had a local team at each of those. And I gave some broad leadership and helped them solve problems locally in our assessment centers across the Midwest. And so I, I was able to do that for about a year and a half. And then I stepped out of that responsibility just at, at the first of the year. So you kind of did some spiritual training. Now you're in the physical training. Huh? Yes, right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, when, when I first met you, mm-hmm. uh, I was at an assessment. Mm-hmm. And my first thought when I saw you was, "Why? Wow, here's a really young guy that's got a lot of responsibility. I mm. said, I'd like to talk to him because mm. it seemed like you had, I don't know if this is true or not, but it seemed like you had some wind at your back mm. or maybe someone who had said, Hey, we believe in this guy. Let's get him out there you know, quickly. Tell me a little bit about maybe your story, how you got into ministry, maybe how you became a Christian. Cause uh, God's just seemed to really favored you at a, in a, in a quick way. If I can just be that honest with you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, well, if most of us are honest, we would say that we 
we're where we are through grace and some really good relationships. And so my story is not much different from that. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, uh, but my grandmother was a follower of Jesus. And so she made sure anytime that uh, the doors were open in the church that I was there. And so she drugged me to the church every time um, there was anything going on. So I don't know how many prayer meetings I sat through as a young person holding the clammy hand of whatever old person was next to me, uh, just praying, you know, dear (laughs) Jesus. Um, So that was the earthly relationship that had the biggest influence on me coming to know Jesus. Um, And then when I was uh, in high school, I really felt like the Lord was, I was at a camp, a summer camp and the speaker was talking about vocational ministry and I really felt compelled um, to respond at that point. And then throughout my college years, I was in a really good church. Um, I grew up in Wyoming. It was a really good church in Casper, Wyoming during my associate, uh, my undergrad uh, at a junior college there. And so I had the opportunity to preach every other Sunday night and participate in some other outreach ministries of that local church. And I was developed quite a bit during that time and um, moved to Kansas in 2002. I thought I was coming for a summer to be a summer missionary at a local church. And at the end of the summer, the church asked me to stay. So I was 20 years old and I drove back to Wyoming and loaded everything I owned into my Saturn. And I moved to Wichita and I was the associate pastor minister of students at a church in the Wichita area for three years prior to moving to Kansas City and uh, for seminary, and we planted a church while we were here in the Kansas City metro area, and then I've been serving with NAM for about 10 years now. Okay, so yeah, that is pretty young to be an mm-hmm. associate pastor at 20. Yeah, it, uh, the church pa- the, the church pastored me more than I pastored them, I would say, <laughs> <laughs> and that's a really, really excellent volunteer, so all of you that labor um, in volunteer ministry, hats off to you because you've probably raised a lot more youth pastors than they've they've raised you. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So I want to get back to some of the things in a minute, but let me just ask yep. you briefly. So you were a youth pastor at 20 and you planted at what age? I was, let me think for a second here, 26 when we planted a church. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I want to get back to that in a minute, but let yeah. me revisit something you just said. You said your grandmother was the mm-hmm. instrumental person in your mm-hmm. conversion. Now you don't, you don't get much closer than that kind of neighbor, like your mom, dad, your grandmother, your grandfather. I mean, so you have some, your story includes a neighborly kind of tone, like, man, your grandmother just took interest in you. Was that something that she did because your parents weren't doing that? If I could be that honest with you, Uh, kind of maybe what sparked that or how'd that go? That's a great question. I I would say my grandmother just deeply loved Jesus. And so more than seeing a deficiency in my parents um, and their spiritual care of me, which, you know, that that's clear because they, they still don't follow Jesus to this day. Um, okay. But she, she just deeply loved Jesus. And she knew that the most transformative thing for any person, especially for someone that she loved, like her, her grandson and her granddaughter, uh, was the most important thing for them would be to know and deeply love Jesus. And so her input into me, it was uh, maternal in nature uh, for sure, but I think it was really spurned from just a deep, deep love for Jesus. And that radiated her whole being. Wow. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. Um, I didn't know that before the podcast, but that's such a, a really interesting perspective. When you think about neighbors and nations, here you are. Um, I mean, we would all say that's the closest mission field we have as our family. 
Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we, my wife, uh, we have five children and she homeschools them. And, you know, for her, that's a giant motivation for her. As I, I tell people all the time, she spends all of her day with lost people, <laughs> uh, little lost people. <laughs> um, and, you know, the biggest work that we have in discipleship begins in our home. Uh, it doesn't matter. It begins with our spouse uh, as we disciple and lead each other to deeper relationship with Jesus. And then it flows to our children as well. And yeah, um, I, I guess one thing I would say about that is your heart for your neighbor has to begin in your home. Like if you can't say that you have a heart for your neighborhood, if you don't have a heart for your, your children or those that are in close relationship with you. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about maybe how the neighbor principle you just shared kind of affects you and your parents' relationship today? It's a great question. Um, it's it's a little difficult. I don't have much of a relationship with my dad. Uh, he's been in and out of prison for the last 20 years. Um, he's out now. And so um, my relationship in sharing Jesus with him begins with just being a, a person filled with grace more than being embittered towards him for um, his lack of involvement and everything that precipitated that. Um, I don't have bitterness or anger towards him. I have a lot of uh, hurt and concern for him as someone who's separated from Jesus. And so um, the more grace-filled and forgiving I can be in my relationship with him, it provides a greater platform uh, for me to show the difference that Jesus could make in his life. Um, for my mother, we we speak regularly. And, um, you know, the biggest testimony um, of the grace of God to my mother is his is God's care for me. Um, I remember very early on, I told, shared with my mother that, listen, this summer, it was my, after my first year of college, I said, I'm going to do this mission work. I'm going to serve on this mission team. Um, and she told me, you know, you're, you're not going to make any money doing that. And I said, mom, I believe that if the Lord called me to do something that he'll take care of me if I'm obedient and so I did that summer of work. And at the end of the summer, everything worked out. The Lord did take care of me and meet my needs. And uh, when, we, when I prepared to move to Wichita from Wyoming, I said, this is where I'm going. This is what I'm doing. And she said, you know, every time you say that the Lord tells you to do something, everything seems to work out. So I don't have any reason to doubt this decision that you're making. And so when you live a life of obedience and the Lord blesses you, that's the biggest testimony uh, towards anyone who's far from Jesus. And so for those that have parents that are far from the Lord, if you live a consistent Christian life of faith and obedience, that's the biggest testimony that you can offer to someone who's far from the Lord. Wow, that's gold, man. Thank you. That's, mm -hmm. some, that's great. It's interesting, though, as you shared that. So you left at 20, mm -hmm. and I think you were single then, went to Wichita as a single young man. Mm -hmm. Met your wife there, I guess? I did. I pretty much dated all five women that were in Wyoming. <laughs> so anyone who, anyone who wasn't my mother or one of her friends, so I had to go somewhere else to, to find somebody to marry. But yeah, so I met my wife, Jessica, at the first church I served on staff at. So now five kids later, here you mm -hmm. are. And, yes. Um, and that's, I can just, I can hear your heartbeat really uh, overflowing for those who are close, like neighbors. This first church you went to, I'm just curious, was there like a missions We'll use the word missions program. No, I mean it was is uh, it was about as traditional of a Southern Baptist church that you could you could get. They had Sunday school. They had 
Royal Ambassadors and Girls in Action. Um, they had Sunday school, but there wasn't there. And we were very involved internationally. We supported and really celebrated a lot of IMB missionaries, International Mission Board missionaries. Um, but the extent of the outreach at that church really revolved around um, a program that they did in the fall every year called Judgment House. It was kind of like a, you know, scare people oh. with the reality of hell kind of situation. Um, early in that church's Probably history. Right Halloween. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how familiar everybody is, but basically groups of people would register and come through and witness different scenes in a person's life. Um, and then depending on decisions that they made, they would either end up in glory with Jesus or uh, end up in hell. And then they would be presented with a very truncated gospel presentation afterwards and be given the opportunity to respond in some way to that message. And that was something that the church was very involved with um, for a time. And man, it, it did it did have an influence on me, um, I would say, in a different direction as far as the most effective means of evangelism or talking to lost people um, or people far from the Lord about Jesus. So, uh, but as far as outreach goes, that was about the extent of that church's outreach ministry. And was it in that church where you sensed this need to church plant? No, not at all. Um, that okay. came that came after we moved to uh, the Kansas City area, so I could attend Midwestern okay. Seminary. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that was a divine. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, that was more of a divine calling. Um, I remember it was the summer after my first year of seminary, and um, I spent the whole first year of my first year of seminary just prostituting myself out with my resume, trying to find a church job, and nothing would nothing would happen. I was very frustrated. And there was a point during that summer in between my first and second year when I was um, in my devotional time and the Lord just spoke to me and he said, uh, you know, Matt, you only want to do ministry if someone's going to pay you to do it. And it cut me to the heart because I knew it was true of me at that point. And so it was at that point I said, Lord, I'll, we'll do whatever you want us to do. We'll go wherever you want us to go. And so at that point is when the Lord really started to talk to us about church planting as we okay. really laid ourselves bare before him. Was a foreign mission field in the picture when you said, I'll go wherever? You know, at that point, I was as honest as I could be to say, God, where, where would you take us? We'll go anywhere that, that you want us. And so I was open to any possibility at that point. Um, and it could have been just the, the timing of the situation, some books that I'd read, some conversations that I'd had, but the direction that we moved into after that was a, a church planting direction nationally or here locally. Yeah. Well, I'm pro church planting, no doubt. So I'm Amen. thankful for that. Yeah. I just kind of curious as you as you kind of filter down your calling. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you this. This is an odd question perhaps, but if you had to quantify this calling you received, this idea of church planting there in that area, how much of that was related to, as you were looking out, you saw just people who were lost, who were far from Jesus, and you said, I want to reach them. How much of that was part of it, or was it maybe um, other factors, or I don't know if even it's a good question, but were you looking out to the fields and realized, wow, we got to do something? Yeah, I would say that's part of it. Um, for me, it was really a question of um, potential long-term regret also. Um, and what I mean by that is I knew I didn't want to get 10 years down the road in ministry and say, what if we would have planted that church? I wanted to know. 
So for me, it was a series of questions that led us to plant. It was, does God desire churches to be planted? The answer to that is yes. Has he gifted and enabled us with the desire to plant a church? The answer was yes. Was there a community in our area that needed a new church to be planted? The answer to that question was yes. And so for me, uh, for Jessica and I at that point, it was like, well, what are we waiting for then? If these things are true, um, I knew that we would have a lot of regret if we didn't plant that church. Um, and I can't, I'm just not wired that way. It's so a desire to reach the lost, I think, is the bedrock for any follower of Jesus, not those call, not only those called into a type of vocational ministry. Um, so absolutely, there was a desire to reach the lost, but I can't say that there would have been a different desire uh, than if I would have decided to uh, be a consultant or work in a business environment. My hope would be that my desire for the lost would be just the same. I, I, when I go and train people at the gym that I work at part-time, I, the deepest desire in my heart is that they would come to know and follow Jesus through a relationship Amen. that I have with them. Um, and so that, that doesn't change the, the work that I, I'm, I don't have to be a minister of the gospel. I get to be, and that's the blessing of my, one of the blessings of my life, but our call to make disciples doesn't change regardless of the work we put our hands to each day. Yeah, that's great. That's good. That's a good message to remind our listeners about their vocation isn't the thing we get our identity from. That's a good point. Yeah. I, I just, that just reminds me of something. I, I'm sure it was Alan Hirsch that I heard the first said this the first time that your conversion is your calling in your baptism is your commission to go. So any, for any person who's a follower of Jesus, you've, you've been sent, you're a sent person. So don't let the absence of some kind of title uh, keep you from being a disciple maker. Yeah. That church plant, Mm-hmm. was rough though, wasn't it? Yeah, it was uh, bittersweet is the, I would say, yeah, the best word I could give to it. It was rough. <laughs> it was a blessing a and yeah, it was blessing and it was difficult at the same time. So the little bit I do know about you, I, you've shared with me that that was a very, there's some pain associated with that. Walk us through some of the things you learned and maybe what happened in a general sense so we can learn from that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we planted a church in a town called DeSoto, and we were very creative. So we named the church DeSoto Community Church. Um, yeah, creative, all right. <laughs> but it was it was a neat a, a community that needed a church, a, a town of about five thousand people, and there were three churches in town when we moved there to plant. And so um, we moved there with a lot of hope, but not a lot of training, and we didn't uh, we didn't raise a a great amount of financial support. We didn't really have a strong sending church. So the language that a lot of people would use for that is we simply parachuted in, which would be pretty appropriate. So as my wife and I, we didn't have any children at the time. We're 20, I was 26. Um, and we just moved to the community. We did have a couple families that came with us from the outside. Um, and we began having Bible study with them, but we were the only couple that actually lived in the town that we were planting in. And so, uh, we began to meet people, uh, had Bible studies in our home, and very quickly after we moved to the community, we started having public worship services. And for the first two and a half years of our plant, things went well. Um, we saw increasing numbers of people attending worship. Um, we were involved with things in our community in the schools. Uh, the Rotary Club had partnered with us on two separate occasions to host a back-to-school block party to provide school supplies. To students. Uh, we had summer camps that saw 75, 80 children involved, and we were baptizing people, and things were going really well for about two and a half years. And um, 
then things really fell apart and um, we ended up closing the church about close to five years after we began having services and it was it was incredibly it was incredibly difficult and Jessica would say that she knew it was over about a year before I did um, but I can still remember the day I woke up and I was lying in bed and I rolled over and looked at her and said, I think this is over. And there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of hope and a lot of regret mixed in the middle of all of that. So that's the short story that of our, of our church plant. It doesn't seem like that settled in you in a bitter way to, you know, where you suddenly want to not be around people. I don't care where they go in the end. Like it didn't seem like that's affected you, but was there some temptation in that direction? Like I'm done. I don't want to care for people anymore. I don't think that there was definitely some bitterness, but it, it didn't come from, it didn't manifest itself in a disdain for others or a non-desire to care for them. My, uh, my bitterness more manifested itself in an, in a general anger that uh, in myself that I couldn't get it done. Um, so failure was anathema to me, uh, setbacks. Yes. Learning curves. Yes. But, uh, I'm not a person in my life that can tolerate a large amount of failure personally. And so this was the first time in my life that I'd experienced a large failure, uh, of something that I'd exercised leadership of. And so that was a difficult, that was a difficult pill to swallow. You can imagine you, you process that pretty well though. I think some books you've read, um, maybe some men and women around you, I'm not sure, but uh, you seem to kind of come out of that. You're back involved in ministry at a church now in a vocational yeah, way. Absolutely. And that never really left. A after that season of, um, and we talk about that some more in a second, but after that season of uh, moving out, I, I moved directly into doing uh, interim pastoral work, and that suited me very well. I was an interim pastor of four separate churches in about a three-year span of time. Um, we moved to a different community and we're involved with two church plants in that community and help them get off the ground in a significant way. And so our time after we left the church that, or closed the church that we planted wasn't um, a wandering in the desert. It was a very active time. Um, and so I'm very thankful to those churches that we were able to serve as interim because they were fractured and had some difficulties. Anytime a leader leaves, even if it's for a good reason, it, it creates some challenges in a local church. But they, they loved on us very well while, while we were there. And that was a very cathartic thing for sure. Do you have any um, high level learning points mm. from that experience that maybe you could share with us? Absolutely. The, the first thing I would say to any leader and, and is when you, when you're the leader of an organization, uh, everything rise and rises and falls with your responsibility. And, you have to own that. Um, David Putman, the way he would say that is the vision that you write, you must also underwrite. And that doesn't just include your, the financial responsibility of the church that you're planting, but that includes the leadership capacity of the church as well. And so every problem that manifested itself in the life of our church and eventually led to its closing was really a leadership problem. And that's something that um, it did take me a while to own that. It took me about two to three years Todd, to realize that, no, these problems that I was saying, if it wasn't for X or if Y would have turned out differently, then maybe ultimately those were leadership 
leadership problems. And so the primary domain that I work in now is with church planters and those desiring to plant. And so most of the learning that I share with them coming out of that um, has to do with uh, their capacity and ability to raise funds. Um, Secondly, the lengthening of their runway or the training that they need prior to planting. And finally, their capacity to plant not just alone, but with a team. And so I really encourage our guys to take more time than they think is necessary before they plant to fall under some kind of leadership um, for an internship or an apprenticeship of some kind to develop themselves and also to think through um, the building of their team more intentionally than we did. So those would be the, my, my biggest three learnings coming out of that. So can I stretch that for a minute and have mm-hmm. you speak into something? Cause you said something quite insightful that, it took you some time to own mm-hmm. situations like you looked at A, you looked at B, and it, it frustrated you, but you came back to this realization that, hey, this is this is on me. I want to stretch that to the idea of outreach or missions or neighbors and nations. So when someone complains that, uh, maybe complains not a great word, but when someone observes, notices like, you know, just I'm not saying anyone follow Christ. I'm not. Mm-hmm. finding time for gospel conversations. And they're always saying, well, it's because of this, mm-hmm. it's because of that. Would you say the same principle applies there that actually you got to own that? If if there's not this consistent outreach in your life, it's not because of something on the outside. Mm-hmm. I mean, is it something on the inside of us? Is that the real root problem? Uh, short answer is yes. Uh, I, with any, when, when, uh, when I speak with people that are making um, an excuse or giving me, they would call it a reason. Um, I usually say my, my normal response is, well, it doesn't sound like it's that important to you. And, Mm -hmm. and just, let's just name those things for what they are. Uh, we all have time, talent, and treasure. And so we all have to spend those things in appropriate areas. And so if you're that, that's the truth for sharing your faith or eating, eating healthier or exercising or reading more or spending time with your wife or your kids, uh, you have to name that it's important or not important to you because the things that are important to you, you'll spend your time, talent, and treasure on. Um, but if they're not, you won't. So even beginning with the reality that this thing in my life, whether it's sharing my faith, um, eating right, exercising, reading, whatever, beginning with the, the reality that right now it's not that important to me, owning that is the foundation for building a habit where it will inevitably show it's important to you. But you have to start with realizing at this point in my life, it's not that important to me. That's some hard preaching, brother. <laughs> it's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's good. Well, why do you think it's not important uh, right now? And let's say to many Christians, you know, we've been, we've seen a decline in baptisms for a number of years in the SBC. Um, yeah. Yeah. What's going on in our culture that we don't think is that important. Uh, well, when we say culture, I, I, I guess I want to narrow that window a little bit and say the culture of the church. Um, because, okay, yeah, let's go that route. Yeah. Um, one, let me just answer this in a way that I've observed. Uh, when I would encounter, when I'd go into a church specifically in an interim situation, um, I'd realize that, you know, the, the reason that people are where they are is because somebody led them here. So it doesn't do me any good to blame the sheep uh, for the way that they've been shepherded. And so if we have a problem with a 
an evangel a desire for evangelism in the hearts of our people, um, that begins with us. What do we celebrate uh, uh, in the life of our church as leaders? What do we hold up as valuable? Uh, what are we telling them, or and not just telling them, but what are we modeling and showing them a meaningful and a beautiful Christian life looks like? Um, and so we can't blame our people um, if they don't love lost people, if they don't see the love for lost people being modeled. Um, and that that has implications for how we preach, for how we lead, for how we spend our time. If you're a commissioned leader in the life of a local church, uh, you need to fight for time to be with people that are far from Jesus. Uh, because it can be super, it can become super simple or easy to let all of your time be wrapped up with people that from their perspective already know the Lord. Um, but you, you have to really fight for that time to lead from the front and open up your schedule to a point where you can spend time with people that are far from the Lord. And the more you do that, the more people see what's important to you. My kids live with me every day, especially since they're homeschooled. They can see what's important to daddy pretty fast. Um, uh, doesn't matter what I say, but they'll see it. And the more they see what's important to me, the more they want to be with me doing what I'm doing. So if I'm exercising, they want to exercise with me. If we're playing a game or reading a book, they want to read a book. They want to play a game. Uh, so in leadership in the life of the church, it's the same. If we spend our time with lost people, our people want to spend their time with lost people. If we um, celebrate the stories of life change, then people want to be a part of those life change in, in their own part of a life change in their own life. So uh, it just depends on what we're modeling is important. And that goes back to what you said about you must underwrite what you write. That's You're right. Saying here with your actions and your, you got to model what you mandate, so to speak. Yeah. So yeah. to answer your question that you initially asked, Todd, I would say that the, the problem is, is us <laughs> as leaders. Um, we got to own that, right? Yeah. It's our problem. <laughs> if, yeah. yeah. Um, I remember I heard a leader say one time he was talking to his wife and he was frustrated, uh, not with his wife, but with these interns that he had. He's like, they're arrogant. They're prideful. They don't learn anything. They don't like to listen. And she, she listened to him for a while. And she said, well, you know what the problem is? They're like you. That's what, that's your problem. They, they're like you. And he realized at that Ouch. point, yeah, she was right. <laughs> he realized she's telling me the truth here. My biggest problem is they're like me. If I want them to be different, I need to be different. Mm -hmm. In regards to planting mm -hmm. and even your role later to help train planters, assess planters, um, stuff like that, walk me through a little bit about how you keep a planter's eyes not only on his immediate field, we'll call it, but how do you keep his eyes even on other fields, you know, so they're thinking both and about nations and neighbors. Mm, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, first of all, I begin with every leader to ask them, what do you feel like the Lord's calling you to do? Um, and I'm here to help you do what the Lord's calling you to do. And for those that desire to plant, uh, I just ask them most of the, my, most of the time the training comes with questions that I do with them is, and then what, and then what? And so I want them to think through the natural implications of the things that they're giving their time to or asking their people to give their time to. And so, um, if we get to a point when the nations aren't involved in that conversation, um, I just ask them point blank, Hey, have you given thought to when, um, this may be a priority for you? And, if they say no, or if they say yes, then we can build a plan from there. But, you know, in our work as catalysts, most of our, most of our work has to do with planting and multiplying 
church plants here locally. And so a lot of time a leader will have a heart for the nations and he's planting a church. We have a planter in our area that he's got a heart for the nations and he's in a collegiate community. And so their desire is to reach college students with the gospel that are from international from countries outside of the U S and then send them back to their countries to, to plant multiplying churches. And so that's how they accomplish. They're accomplishing that both and for them. Um, but it's very hard to give, give somebody a heart for something that they don't already possess. And so, um, if a, most of our planters, if, if they don't have, um, a strategy for the nations, for me, it's just a reflection of either what the Lord's built into them or even a deficiency that, uh, they haven't really thought through yet. Sometimes that there's a seed in there or a flicker. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It needs either water or a little bit of air, you know, to kind of uh, fan that into flame. And then suddenly that can grow. Uh, do you have an opinion on whether one comes first? Like, do you think you're more likely to be concerned for nations as you see God working in your neighbors? Or do you think as you see the world, you're more likely to say, man, that matters right here at home. What's your opinion? Well, the the first thing that comes to my mind, Todd, is uh, a quote from quotation from G.K. Chesterton's book, book Orthodoxy, and it's basically that your world becomes much bigger when you become a smaller part of it. And so, the bigger vision that we can give our people for the world, um, the more they'll see their place in it. And so, my gut reaction, my initial thought is the more people see and understand what's happening in the larger world, the, the more they'll be able to uh, focus on disciple making here. So my initial reaction would be the, the more they're made aware, people are made aware of a need in the nations, uh, the more they'll have a heart for their, for their neighbor. Because most of our problems, and I think about most of the problems that we have even today, they stem from a lack of understanding, and a lack of understanding stem, and empathy stems from a lack of awareness, and that's a direct result of not seeing a bigger picture than the one that you're currently seeing, because we all have a tendency to be super myopic, <laughs> so the, the more we can expand that view out, uh, the better off we're going to be. I've asked that question to several people. That's probably the most reasoned answer I've heard. I don't know if there's a right answer. It could vary uh, from person to person, perhaps, but that's a very well-reasoned answer uh, rooted in maybe how things work. So I appreciate that. Uh, I do tend to share the same opinion. It seems like when you are exposed to what God is doing and his global mission, it it tends to affect you suddenly where you are. I, I tend to agree with that. So I just love to pick your brain on some of these nations and neighbors things. Hey, let's go back to some uh, to one question. When you were in the middle of this pain, after the after what you called a failure, I'm not sure I'd agree with that, but in your world at least, it seemed that way. Um, how did you kind of manage, or uh, that's not a great word, but live with the pain of that while you still continued on mission for the Lord? What you're made of is what comes out of you when you're squeezed. One of the great revealers of the failure of our plant uh, was the reality that my identity doesn't have anything to do with the the things that I put my hands to every day. I want to say anything to do, but I would say the core of my identity doesn't have anything to do with the things I put my hands to every day. And so the fact that our church plant failed and failed is a direct result of my poor leadership doesn't mean I'm any less a blood-bought child of the king than I was the day before. It's so what allowed me to keep 
persevering and to keep ministering was the fact that um, I know that Jesus isn't any less thrilled with me now than he was the day that we planted and had a lot of vision in our heart. I know that I'm still his son and that does not change. And I knew that in my most important relationships that those people were still for me. They were still proud of me and they still cared deeply about me. And those things didn't change. And so the failure was, it was hard to bear. Absolutely. Cause as I said before, um, failure was not something that I had experienced a lot of prior to that. Um, but I knew my identity was, was secure and we just have to be real careful with the things that we allow to shape us. And so if we don't have a very, if we don't have a very robust sense of our own being, um, man, it can be super easy for the waves and the wind to crush us when they don't have to. Let's stretch that for a minute as well. So let's take the other person who's sharing their faith a lot maybe someone like uh, yourself who has very close family who doesn't know the Lord. They've been at it for years and know on the surface success, even in that, what they might consider like, I'm just not getting the job done. What you're saying here is that's not the core of your identity, whether you convert them or not. I mean, that can be actually um, an encouraging note. Absolutely. I agree with that. And I, I think that if we allow our sense of being to be influenced too much by the things that we put our hands to. And in, even in a ministry sense, what we're really revealing there is a codependency on, on something um, that's not healthy. Obviously we have to be super careful about those things. And that's something that we talk to our planters about quite a bit is making sure that they have these networks and avenues of support that when, Hey, what are you going to, and so uh, how that's influenced me today, even in the work that I get to do is I have everybody do a pre-mortem about, about their plant. Um, right. As they're wrap, ramping up, I say, Hey, what are you going to do if this thing falls apart on you? Not just in a big sense with their whole church plant, but like an event, because that happens often when you're planting or even pastoring a local church, you could plant a big event. It could fall flat. Um, so if you work through the mental exercise before that of, Hey, what are we going to do if this thing falls apart? What am I going to say to my volunteers? Um, what are we going to say to the church? How are we going to process this and this and this. If you think through all of those potentialities before uh, something happens, then you're in a much healthier place mentally if it does happen. Um, and so that's, that's true in the big things and the small things. Uh, General Mattis, he, he used to be the secretary of, of defense. Um, he, he said, somebody was asking him a question one day about, about leading in, bat in battle. And he said, I made it my aim to never be surprised by anything. And so like, how do you do this? Well, I read everything. So there's nothing that the enemy could do that will surprise me ultimately. And so the way I translate that into leadership is, Hey, what are we going to do if this falls apart? Have you thought through this? Have you thought through this um, plan for the, the other colloquial way to say would be plan for the what the worst and hope for the best. Right. But um, I'd already mentally prepared for the day that this thing could go wrong on me or even the day that if it goes well and I end up going to do something else, how's that going to work? And so the more you can plan for that, the greater likelihood that it won't crush you, even if something goes wrong. Pre-mortem. Pre I've not heard that before. That's pretty good, Matt. That's a, <laughs> how do they respond when you ask them that? What do they look at you kind of funny? Yes, because most of them, let's, let's be honest, Todd, most of us as leaders, we don't like to think about things failing, right? That's not, that's not helpful. No, 
no, but so usually it, they, they literally will sit back for a minute and their eyes will get big. And most of the time it's, I haven't really thought about that. I'm like, well, let's think through that. Let's talk through that. What happens if, so you plan this huge outreach. Uh, what happens if nobody comes? What are you going to do? I don't know. Okay. Well, think about your volunteers. What are you going to say to them? Um, what's your next step if that happens? Um, and the, again, the more mentally you can prepare, the easier it is when something like that happens. Mm-hmm. Kind of thinking through some what if scenarios. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you've been on the sending side and you've been on the sent side, correct? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So give some thoughts. I mean, you're now working in a church. Um, you're also, as a trainer, around a lot of lost people. Just talk to our listeners uh, in the closing bit about this uh, the idea of neighbors and nations as one who has been sent, like you are, and one who has sent before. Like you've seen a little both sides of the fence. So talk to our listeners who are typically young pastors, young planters, church members. They're kind of in the church culture, as you call it. Yeah, give us some closing thoughts on neighbors and nations and just things that maybe you, you've seen, observed, and you feel. One of the biggest encouragements I can give to you is to think through um, who is in your sphere of influence that can um, do your job someday. So um, what I mean by that is the way I try and live my life in leadership is uh, I'm trying, I need to identify someone in my sphere of influence that can do my job about 80% as well as I can. If that person is there, then either then one of us isn't necessary. Either I need to find something else to go do, or I need to empower them to go and do something different. Um, so it creates, if not, you're creating like a leadership bottleneck. And so uh, my biggest encouragement would be to begin that process of building a leadership pipeline by identifying who in your sphere um, is, is a competent or close to as competent as you. And if that person doesn't exist, you know what your primary leadership task is. And if they do, then begin finding things for them to empower themselves into doing because chances are there's a leadership vacuum that needs filled um, that either you or that person that you've discipled and led needs to fill. And if you're not preparing that person, then you're really inhibiting movement and multiplication in the life of your church. And so that's the first thing I would say. The second thing is we like to start with really big and grandiose ideas of movement when really it just begins with one person. Uh, so if you want to reach the nations, start start in your home, disciple your wife, disciple your children, um, and then move to the person next door to you. And then when you reach somebody in your neighborhood, why don't you then think about um, a, a person there, a coworker that you work with? Now you know you don't you don't have to wait for that to happen. But um, the also the other thing I would say is have a plan. So uh, when we planted, I made it my aim to meet five new people every week to have significant conversations with three of them and to share the gospel with one. And, um, you know, the more conversations I had with everybody, uh, the more I had the opportunity to have significant conversations. And those were conversations beyond what's your name. And the more significant conversations I had with people, the more they would tell me how I could be praying for them. Because if you listen to somebody long enough, they'll tell you how to share the gospel with them because they'll reveal a hurt that they have that only the gospel can heal. And the more that you listen to people and the more that you share, the more people will respond um, in faith. And that's how movement, that's how movement begins. So have a plan, um, start small, and think about who you can multiply in your own life. That sounds like the Matt Mastis version of Acts 1-8. That was, that was pretty awesome. <laughs> he said, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And I mean, that's just kind of what you said. That was great, man. Um, 
Yeah, but you got to give credit to uh, Luke on that one, okay? <laughs> yeah, well, he he wrote it first. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> hey, Matt, uh, if someone wanted to kind of reach out to you and uh, pick your brain on some things, even if maybe just on a personal level, like how to get through some pain, how to deal with what they perceive as a failure, is there a platform they might could access you through? Sure, absolutely. Um, you can email me anytime, um, mmastis at nam.net. That's M-M-A-E-S. T-A-S at nam.net. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm just at Matt Mastis and I'm also the same on Instagram at Matt Mastis. So there aren't very many of us rolling around on Facebook either. So you can usually find me pretty easily there. Um, but if, yeah, anybody would like to connect or even think through how do you process failure? I have one of those conversations with somebody at least once a month about, man, this happened not the way that I wanted it to. What do I do? Yeah, let's talk about that. I'd love to. I'd love to share with you or just listen and pray with you. So, and they might need a physical routine or workout. You could give them that too, right? Yeah, if you if you uh, hook hook up with me on Instagram, you'll see me regularly swinging some heavy object of my own creation or the creation of another. Or yeah, if you you'll see me pictures of me mowing a lawn, wearing a forty pound weight vest or something else ridiculous like that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Matt, thanks a bunch. I really appreciate it. I yeah. hope that there's been um, some good encouragement here. I know there's been some really good nuggets folks can tie on to that will affect their life in multiple arenas. Hey, and thanks for staying on mission for the Lord uh, through some tough times. Uh, you've been an encouragement to me, and I do think God's favored you in a unique way. You're not as young as you used to be, but you do have a ton of potential uh, as a young leader, and I'm glad uh, you're on board, man. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the Neighbors and Nations podcast. To learn more about how to support this podcast and our partners, go to toddstyles.net slash podcast. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcasting app.